This afternoon I'd like to talk about taking this practice home. And before I get into details of kind of what to do, I want to talk a little bit about um, this practice as an area for new understandings. I came into these kinds of practices after I'd been doing uh, Vipassana for about 20 years. And I'd been a monk in Thailand and I'd done a number of three-month courses, etc., and when I happened on the awareness practices, it felt like I'd, I was exploring a new room in an old house. I was familiar with all the other rooms, and yet there was this one off one of the main corridors I'd never been in before. And as I started to know it and get familiar with it, I found that it changed my understandings of a lot of the ways that I'd held practice before. So some of these we may have talked about in Dharma Talk, some of them you may have touched on in interviews, but I wanted to bring out some of the ways that I felt practice changed as a result of learning about awareness, uh, and that my, how my understanding of practice changed. One of the key things for me was that I found a new and immediate refuge I found something steady and reliable and trustworthy that was in my direct field of experience. And the reason it was steady and reliable and trustworthy is that to some extent it was beyond change. It felt beyond change. Whether it is or not, the philosophers can debate. But it feels like that. And in that, there's a way that the, um, our center of gravity can shift from centering around objects and what's happening with objects, and even objects of mind. It can shift to this new place in our being that's another dimension. One of the great things about this other dimension is we don't have to produce it. You don't have to produce awareness. It's already here. It's always already here. You just have to tune into it. So we'd say that this dimension of our being, this empty awareness that we come to know as an intrinsic part of us, is an aspect of reality. It's a profound aspect of reality. So uh, Dujim Lingpa, a Tibetan teacher, said that in taking up this practice, one is taking the fundamental nature of reality as the unsurpassable ultimate refuge. The nature of reality is our refuge and we can touch it here and now. The second thing that uh, shifted for me is that I really saw the heart of Dharma practice, as I talked about the other night, moving from the second to the third noble truth. This practice highlights that moment after moment. We're either in the second noble truth with craving, clinging, and suffering, or we're in the third noble truth of temporary nibbana and release and ease. So my understanding of what I was doing in practice started to move to 
Am I in the second noble truth or am I in the third noble truth? Am I grasping or am I in empty awareness? If I'm not grasping, then I, I can be in empty awareness. And this is kind of pointed to by a quotation from the Buddha on page six, quotation 28, when he says, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. That's the pith of that quotation. But he goes on to say, one who has heard this has heard all the teachings. One who has practiced this has practiced all the teachings. So this awareness practice highlights this central point again and again and again. Is there clinging or is there not? That's basically all we're concerned about. The third thing that it pointed out to me is it showed another kind of path to awakening or liberation. The traditional path of early Buddhism uh, relies upon these four what are called stages of enlightenment, beginning with stream entry, moving through once returner, non-returner, and arhat, that are usually understood as four successive moments of Uh, at deeper and deeper levels of connecting to the unconditioned element. Direct realization of the unconditioned element responsible for a moment of enlightenment. This idea of awareness offers another way to freedom because in it there's the possibility of stabilizing what is suggested here is that we have the potential to stabilize essentially in this area of non-grasping, the third noble truth. And you may have felt that at different times in the retreat, that it was so um, clear and so steady that you felt stable in it for periods. There's no reason that with further meditation and further development, that stability can't go on and on and on. Now, after a couple of hours of talking yesterday, you may feel it's slightly more remote than it was two days ago. But nonetheless, this is a different description of a path to liberation. And it may uh, seem more possible for us because we've tasted that stability. And we know we just need to do it more. Another way that it... um, shows a little difference in the path is our normal understanding of the Eightfold Path is that we build up wholesome moments little by little, little by little, over and over, and they lead us closer and closer to the unconditioned, to the realization of the unconditioned. There's this lovely quotation from the Buddha, don't underestimate the value of wholesome moments by the gradual falling of raindrops, a jar is filled. So accumulation of mindfulness moments starts to fill up the jar, and when it gets full enough, it tips into the unconditioned. This awareness practice, in a way, reverses the process. It almost starts with the unconditioned. And it says, if you can get a little peak of this thing, trust that. Awareness is like the unconditioned. When we glimpse it, we're almost looking from the other direction. And then we trust that expanding these glimpses 
wears away the kilesas. Awareness itself is free from kilesa, it's unstained. So when we can rest there, the mind is temporarily purified. That's that temporary nibbana that Ajahn Buddhadasa talked about. As we rest there more and more, the power of our natural state, the power of this free dimension within us starts to wear down the kilesa, wears down the obscurations. Another thing that becomes clear um, from practicing with this for a while is that now we know what to do in practice when the mind becomes calm. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but this happened to me a lot. I'd be with a practice like the breath, you know, or even body scan or something, and I'd come into this state of calm where there wasn't much going on in the mind and there wasn't much going on in the body. So objects were really quiet. But then what was I supposed to attend to? I'd gotten there by attending to objects. And then what was I going to do next? You know, Sally talked about this possibility of samatha without support, which I've sometimes sort of played with in my own mind, the way she described it as being with the stillness itself. So that's one approach. But I often felt I'd get on this, this uh, open space of calm and I didn't know what to do and I'd just kind of hang out there but then my mind would drift because there wasn't really a clear place to land. Breath was really subtle. Sensations were really subtle. Weren't many thoughts. And I'd just kind of float away into a little bit of distractedness. Now when I hit that space of calm, I know what to do. I turn to awareness. It's always there. When the mind is calm, there's that foundation of samadhi that makes it easy to connect. And a couple of people have mentioned, I don't know if it was in interviews or questions here in the hall, that when awareness is is seen clearly, it becomes a very good focus for attention. It's a very um, clear part of our experience, and it's still, and it's without kilesa. So it's a very good um, meditation focus when it's available. And in times of calm, I find it's the clearest. It's the clearest focus that's available to me. And because I have interest in it, that drift doesn't set in. It just feels wonderful to be in touch with that quality of awareness. You know, it's so interesting. Um, Someone said in an interview the other day that they felt a timeless quality in this awareness. When they're with the awareness, it felt like it was out of time. And that's true for something that's not subject to coming and going. Time, the perception of time is basically created by change. And when there is no change going on, time kind of falls away as a perception, as a felt sense. So that means that you know, we have discovered an element that is beyond coming and going, and it means it's always there. It's always there. 
It's even there in dreams. I don't know if you all have played with this at all. There's this approach called lucid dreaming where you find your meditation subject in a dream. And awareness can be found in dreams also. It's also there. So wherever you are, awake or dreaming, you can find this focus. Another um, thing I learned from being with the awareness is I really learned the value of non-doing. In standard Vipassana instructions, the direction to connect and sustain, vitaka and vichara, is so much at the heart of our meditation practice. Connecting, sustaining with the breath or sensations. Even in choiceless attention, we connect and sustain with objects as they come up. That's a, you know, it's a beautiful practice. It's an essential part of deepening concentration. But at a certain point, that repeated effort to connect and sustain moment after moment isn't needed. In some meditation, in some meditation experiences, you'll find the effort will fall away in vipassana practice as well as the awareness practice. You will get to a point where effort's no longer needed to be with the present moment. But this practice of awareness really highlights that non-doing with the instruction of resting. Once we get the sense of resting and we have a clear focus, which is awareness, where the attention can go without movement, it really strengthens this feeling, the flavor of non-doing. And in non-doing, the self is really out of the picture. The self has really stepped aside and we're trusting we don't have to do the Dharma. The Dharma starts doing us. It's really clear. We don't have to do anything at that point. So there's this beautiful quality of effortlessness, non-doing that comes in through this practice, still with a clear focus for the attention to be on. And this is kind of the... um, the direction, you could say, that surrender leads to. Or letting go leads to. Letting go leads into this non-doing. We let go of control, we let things be where they are, as they are, and yet we can still connect to awareness. The practice also really highlights the importance of relaxation. If we're straining we won't be connected to awareness. When we relax, it's already there. There's this lovely poem. There was a medieval Christian contemplative named Angelus Silesius who wrote a little poem. Of course, he put it in God terms, but you know, we can can deal with that. But listen to the way he describes God. God is a pure no thing concealed in now and here. The less you reach for it, the more it will appear. A pure no thing. Does that sound like awareness? Kind of does. Concealed in now and here. The less you reach for it, the more it will appear. 
So as we get into this uh, level of relaxation and opening to what at least feels like it's beyond change, what seems to be always there, it opens up an avenue to devotion. Devotion is sometimes not emphasized very much in Vipassana circles, but it has been a central part of every major religion for as long as history goes. The Buddha brought this up after his awakening, and he said, it's painful to dwell without reverence and deference. However, in this world, I do not see another ascetic or Brahmin more developed in virtue, concentration, wisdom, or liberation than myself, whom I could honor, respect, and dwell in dependence on. Let me then honor, respect, and dwell in dependence on this dharma to which I have become awakened. So the Buddha is basically saying, if there is someone more developed than we are in, in virtue, Uh, concentration, wisdom, and liberation, we can honor and revere that person. Dwell in dependence would mean dwell near them and continue to, to learn from them. Fortunately, today, there are many beings who are more developed in these ways than we ourselves are. So there are many examples for devotion in the community of, of senior practitioners. But at the same time, we don't have to neglect the devotion to the Dharma. And so one of the things I felt and that I felt coming from some of you in the interviews is a sense of kind of awe and a reverence for this quality of awareness and also what it opens us to. It's a mystery. How did this awareness get here in this body? How is it that it can know the phenomena of the world? It can know our own mind. And yet there it is. And so when I think about one single element of the Dharma that I can uh, prostrate towards, I think about this awareness, the mystery of this empty awareness that's always available. And I can feel that um, reverence and respect when I turn that way. So sometimes when um, when I chant the refuges and I come to refuge in the Dharma, I think about this empty awareness. That's what comes to my mind because it's immediate, immediate felt sense and it's liberating potential. And it also gives us a sense of where we might incline the mind to lead to Nibbana. We've talked about in awareness like the unconditioned that there may be a link, a direct link from this quality of awareness into the unconditioned, into Nibbana through this notion of Buddha nature. So as we direct our attention that way, and we feel its quality as a refuge and like the unconditioned, 
it gives us a sense of what we can release into that which is beyond change. And finally, it gives us a sense of the um, primary importance of awareness. In doing object-oriented practices for a long time, breath and choiceless attention and body scan, emotional um, mindfulness, we can really think that Vipassana practice is all about the objects that come into our experience, both the physical objects and the objects of mind. But this dimension makes it really clear that there's something holding all those appearances, physical appearances, appearances of mind. And that which is holding this consciousness or awareness, empty awareness, is more fundamental and more of a refuge, more important than any of the individual objects. So it can take us away from an entanglement with the object. When we're paying attention to objects all day long, it's hard not to get entangled. But this gives us somewhere else to be that's not entangled. So it offers that kind of um, a different dimension, primary dimension. So we've talked about this as um, empty awareness, the union of emptiness and awareness, the natural state. Sometimes it's also called natural awareness. And there's this very nice quote on the last page of the study guide. The four faults of natural awareness. And if you have your study guide, I'm going to have to correct one mistyped word. It's my fault. But you'll know it when we get there. The four faults of natural awareness. So close you can't see it. So deep you can't fathom it. So simple you can't believe it. So good you can't accept it. So the second believe is meant to be accept. It's so good you can't accept it. This is what we've been exploring. This is what we've been discovering. It's so close. And so that's why I want to come back to say again It's so close. Whatever you've gotten as your experience through that movement of turning, trust in that. It comes out different ways for different people and it comes out different ways at different times for all of us. Sometimes it's this very clear recognition of the factor of awareness. Sometimes it's a heightened vividness. You turn to awareness and everything kind of lights up. Sometimes there's a sense of letting go. You turn to awareness and there's like a dropping that happens. Sometimes you turn to awareness and there's a stopping. You know, the thoughts stop. The projections stop. Whatever form it takes for you, trust that. Go with that. That's your individual glide path. And it will deepen. And in its deepening, it will clarify exactly what the nature of awareness is. So going back into um, our daily life, how how to work with this new practice. So formal practice is still really important. Even though this gets into the effortless, formal practice is really important. (laughs) 
So this is from um, Shabkar, who we've read a couple of times. Butter is made from the essence of milk, but if the milk isn't churned, the butter won't form. Sentient beings have Buddha nature as their essence, but if they don't practice, they won't be enlightened. So we need to keep practicing. It means in this arena, we need to keep turning to and recognizing awareness. This practice, I think, is really well suited to informal practice times. That means off the cushion or off formal walking. It's a practice you can really take with you out into the world because you don't have to locate your breath. You don't have to feel tingling sensations in the bottom of your feet, anything like that. You just turn and notice awareness, and it's always there. It's always available. So at the end of one retreat, Mingyur Rinpoche gave... uh, direct instruction for maintaining this practice in informal times. I remembered it wrongly when I was talking in one interview to someone. He said, recognize it 100 times a day in informal moments. 100 times a day. So I wanted to take that up as a practice years ago. And Sally bought me one of these um, ticket counters. The ones where you check people going through a turnstile. And so I would try to hit 100 with that every day. It's not easy, but it really helped. <laughs> it really helped keep track. And what I found the best, uh, the best avenue for that was, was boring meetings. <laughs> and being connected to Spirit Rock, I sat through lots of boring meetings. So, you know, it's like every few seconds I could do a click on that. A few hours I'd get up there. I'd make my 100. So, you know, driving might also be it. Walking around shopping might be it. Looking after children, not as boring. Um, Whatever your daily tasks are where you have a little free attention, think about that. 100 times a day really keeps you in touch. And so then when we sit down and do the formal practice, you know, we talk about this a lot at end of retreats, and we usually recommend that you try to sit two hours a day if you have the time. At this phase of your life, that may seem impossible. There were times when I was uh, in the middle of a full-time job, I didn't feel I had the time for that. But as some of us in this room are moving more toward retirement territory, This may be very possible. And the only reason for not doing it might be lack of commitment. So really think about that. If your schedule permits the possibility of sitting two hours a day. My teachers told me this. Joseph told me this on my first retreat. And I've tried to do this for most of my practice career since then. Um, It's gone up and down depending on my level of busyness. But I find that If I can sit two hours a day, it keeps me basically as balanced as when I come out of retreat. That that really maintains my level of equanimity and equilibrium. And then, of course, um, do what you can in that regard. If it's 20 minutes, that's still good. That will still be helpful. And then, of course, continue to go on retreats. Um, Obviously, from the stories of people like Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabua, 
You know the great masters spent many years in retreat doing nothing but sitting and walking meditation. That's the way they became the great masters. That's how the butter gets churned. Um, So do what you can in that regard. And there are a lot of people in here who have done a lot of long retreats. So I know that I'm speaking to the choir to a certain extent, um, but I still just want to encourage for that to continue. And I tell myself that every year. Guy, keep sitting long retreats. It's still really valuable for me. And then some people have asked, where can I do more retreats in this style? It's not so easy to find. Um, There's at least usually one retreat a year at Spirit Rock that's in this style. We, we advertise it as the awareness retreat. Philip Moffat has been um, leading, has been a part of that retreat for years. Sally and I have taught on that retreat many times. And so there's usually at least one retreat a year. Sometimes, though, it's part of a program called the Advanced Practitioners Program, and one might need to join the program to get that retreat. But a lot of years, it's just there on its own. Then the other, other possibility is if you do one of the long retreats at Spirit Rock or IMS, they're just standard Vipassana retreats, but if you want to do awareness practice, you come in and you tell your teacher, I want on this retreat, I want to do this awareness practice. Can you support me in doing that? And a number of teachers on the, those retreats could. And so they would not give instructions in the hall, but they could talk to you in interviews And you could bring in recordings of the talks from this retreat or other talks you found helpful and listen to them in the evenings. Get reminded of the instructions and the talks of this style and carry on that practice amongst other people who are doing standard Vipassana practice. And then the other thing is, as I think many of you know, Sally and I will be doing this retreat again next September. Basically, same same curriculum. Um... And it will be here, yeah, here at the Forest Refuge, September of 2020. And the application is already up on the web. There will again be a lottery for that retreat. But um, we will be doing it again in the fall next year. So a few words on how to integrate this practice with your existing practices. You mentioned APP. I mean, we haven't said what it is really. Uh, Sally's just encouraging me to say something about the Advanced Practitioners Program, which she started. Yay. (laughs) What Sally put together was a series of three retreats that already existed that were then to be held over the course of a year, course of 12 months. One retreat was on... Pardon? Only two of them existed. Only two of them existed. One of them was on emptiness. One of them was on awareness. The third is on liberation. And they're designed for people who have already got quite a bit of meditation experience plus some study background. Then in addition to the three retreats, the whole group signs up for the whole program, which means there are about 100 people going through it. You form a Dharma buddy relationship. You have a conversation regularly with one other person. There is an ongoing um, mentoring group where you meet on a monthly basis with people in your uh, geographical area or online if you're at a remote location, and those are led by a teacher, and you have a mentor in the program. 
and there's monthly homework and reading. So it's a very comprehensive package. And for people at your level of experience, it's a very good program. So the awareness retreat got woven into that, uh, that program. And details about that are up on the Spirit Rock website. You can just search for Advanced Practitioner Program. There's one going and there won't be another one for a year or two. So There's still a description you can read and it's interesting. Okay, so I want to talk a little about how to integrate this practice when you go home with your existing practices, Vipassana and Metta. And so the basic suggestion is the way we did it here, which is... continue um, with your foundation practices. So you you remember that we first turned to mindfulness of breathing to develop a foundation of samadhi or concentration. We turned to loving kindness to open, uh, further open the heart. And on those two foundations, we moved into awareness practice. So at home also, this is a good combination You'll see when you get home how this carries forward for you. Everybody's experience is different. One of the things I found is that when I leave a retreat, an awareness retreat, it's really accessible for a while. And then the fact that the samadhi is dropping off as I move back into daily life has meant that my avenue to the awareness has dropped off. So I find it's not as accessible, you know, a week or two down the road after coming out of a retreat like this. So I find it helpful in my daily practice to support it with a samadhi-oriented practice. Breath and metta both qualify for that. So as I start out a daily sit, I might do a period of mindfulness of breathing. And then I'll check and see if the awareness is available. If it is, great, I'll just stay with that. If it's not, then I might do some metta practice. Because metta also is a foundation of concentration. And then I'll check again if awareness is available. And if it is, I'll rest in that. If it's not, I'll stay with one of the foundation practices. So really go home and see what your experience is. You don't have to be delicate about the awareness practice and say, oh, I better not try it now. You know, I'm not samadhied up enough. (laughs) Try it whenever you have the inclination. But if it doesn't connect, don't take it personally. (laughs) It could just be the samadhi isn't there as the foundation. So I've come to appreciate a lot if awareness isn't available, using um, the practices that lead to samadhi in daily life Because I find that's the element that's usually missing. In my daily life, I don't have the foundation of, you know, settled in the present moment, the steadiness that Sally's talked about, that I do in retreat. So in daily life, I find a samatha practice like breath or metta very helpful. So I do a lot of it. And then if I feel the settledness, I'll turn to awareness. And if it connects, it's wonderful just to rest. So I would integrate it remembering the practices that you've done on this retreat. 
and using them um, kind of as you've played with them on this retreat, what, whatever has been helpful for you. And again, trust what you get when you turn to awareness. You know, it doesn't help to doubt it. If you have a sense of a shift as you turn to awareness, trust that. Stay with that. It may not be the perfect union of emptiness, awareness, and responsiveness. That's okay. Something happened. Some shift took place. Stay with that. Rest. You know, especially if you have a sense of resting and being in uh, touch with what's happening. The awareness is functioning to reveal objects. You have a present moment awareness and there's a sense of resting. That's, that's a great beginning. Trust that and follow it. And then if you go back into retreat practice... Of course, you might want to dive back into awareness straight away. But again, I'd recommend taking a little time in your next retreat, even if it's just a week, to build in a little foundation of uh, samadhi. So spend a few days with the breath, or spend a few days with metta, whichever one kind of steadies you better. And after that foundation is there, shift into this other gear and go back into the recognition of of awareness. So that's really what I wanted to say about taking the practice home. I want to close with um, two quotations from the Tibetans. One we've heard before, but it's worth hearing again. Don't dwell on the past. Don't invite the future. Don't alter the innate wakefulness. Don't fear phenomena. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. Patro Rinpoche. And then, um, actually the other one I'll save till later. I think I'll save it for this evening. That's enough. So, any remaining questions? Have they all been clarified? Jayla. It did occur to me that um, like you gave the talk the other night about the Mahabharata um, and Julian being enlightened and sitting up all night. And, and I just thought, it, as I thought about it, I'm like, it doesn't sound like the under the rosewood tree, more relaxed practice. So, I mean, I guess you could do that in a more relaxed way, but is there a way to reconcile it? Well, so the question is about you know, Ajahn Mahabua and other teachers you know, doing this all-out effort, Ajahn Mahabua sitting up all night, every night for months on end, and Sally's comment of the Buddha sitting under the rose apple tree and remembering dropping into this very pleasant state of ease, and could that be the, the path to awakening? Well, the Buddha's recollection of that memory came after six years of the most intense practice <laughs> of anyone I've ever heard of, including these really extreme ascetic practices. So when his mind was turned to relaxation, that was the right balance. And then it could just open, you know, really beautifully to the unconditioned. Our minds are not as prepared as Siddhartha Gautama's was, 
And so for us, you know, the effort is, is needed for most people. But it depends on your motivation. This quality of effort depends what um, you're aiming for in your meditation practice. If you're aiming for full enlightenment, as Ajahn Mahabua was, I think going full out for it is probably the most likely to succeed. Um, I think about teachers that I've known from the Tibetan tradition. Toko Ergen Rinpoche said he had spent more than half of his life in solitary retreat. And yet when I met him, he was very light and open and cheerful and not pressing anybody. But clearly he had been doing that work for years and years and years. So if you want the highest result, I think you have to work really hard. If, you know, that's not the case for all of us. For many of us, we would be happy with a level of um, harmony, peace, uh, good conduct, harmonious mind states, good relationships in our daily life. And that's a, that's a noble goal in and of itself. So this path of achieving harmony the relaxed way, still combined with retreat practice and even long retreats, uh, is is more realistic these days for people. The number of people who are going to go the route of Ajahn Mahabua, even in Thai monasteries, is very small. So he's an exception. That's partly why he's a great teacher. So for us as lay people in the West, my view is if you do one retreat a year, and keep up your daily practice on a regular basis, you will be um, well on your way to having a harmonious life with good relationships and wholesome states of mind. So that's kind of our recommendation, basically. But I know I'm also talking to a group where a lot of you have done long practice and found a huge benefit from that. So where there's the inclination to longer retreats, go for it. They make, they make a lot of difference. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Uh, Judy and then Roger. Um, I do a lot of self-retreat because of my living situation mm-hmm. and responsibilities. <laughs> and sometimes it will be two or three Dharma buddies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've also done a lot of um, self-retreat in my home. Are, is yours in a ho- in your home? Or, right. Or yeah. Home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I found it a wonderful way to practice when I have the time. So two things about self-retreat that I've uh, tended to adopt and shared with others they found helpful. Make a schedule for yourself. Because around a familiar environment... It's much easier to space out and get distracted by whatever, email or mail or cooking or anything else that's there in the home environment. So I would recommend making a schedule for yourself and one that's doable. I find when I do a group retreat, Spirit Rock or IMS, all I, all I do basically is sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk all day because that's what the group schedule says. And I'm carried along by the energy of the rest of the rest of the yogis. And so that's doable. If I tried to do that at home, I think I would frustrate myself because I think that's difficult to maintain on one's own, that 
totally intensive schedule. So I make a schedule for myself that I feel is doable. And for me, that involves about six sittings a day, some walking, some yoga, and I tend to study on those retreats. That's when I do my Dharma reading, sort of uh, the more challenging Dharma reading where the mind has to be slowed down to get into it. But you have to figure out the schedule on your own. See what works for you. See what's doable. But those are the elements I'd recommend. Make your schedule. Include some walking periods, some yoga or movement, um, some time for study, and then see what feels doable. And listen to Dharma talk in the evening. Yeah. Thanks. Roger? Question, would I suggest attending retreats by teachers in other traditions whose teachings are along the lines of this natural awareness? I would. So the two that I've practiced with, I think you know also, Sotani Rinpoche, whom I've mentioned, and Mingyur Rinpoche. Um, The difficulty is that with those teachers, they... they teach a lot of different styles of retreats. Minjir Rinpoche has become so famous in the West that it's very hard to get any personal time with him. His retreats have a lot of people, and only a few retreats in a year will he teach that are open to people like us where he'll give the depth of instructions in this technique. So you want to look to see that if you're going to go to a retreat with Minjir Rinpoche, that it includes what's called pointing out instructions. And that means he's going to teach on the nature of mind. And the same is true of Sotni Rinpoche, who I've sat with a lot more. Um, he's a very, I found him a very reliable teacher, but a lot, he teaches a lot of retreats that are not nature of mind retreats. And so again, you have to look at the course description and see if it says nature of mind. If you have an opportunity to sit with one of those teachers and they're teaching nature of mind, and they're offering pointing out instructions, I think you could find it really helpful. Michael. Uh, I do have a question that I also wanted to mention in terms of uh, another practice option, the IRC, Inside Retreat Center in mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. I know they have an annual two-week led by Amir Fella, mm-hmm. and it's awareness of awareness, so mm-hmm. that's also available. It's not, maybe not exactly this, but mm-hmm. it's, it's similar. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and then my question is, do you have any Yeah, 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 yeah. Question is how to stay connected with this practice doing more cognitively demanding tasks. And this is a challenge because if, um, if thinking is involved in what you're doing, it's hard to be mindful and think at the same time. The mindfulness of thoughts usually interrupts the flow of thoughts. So for instance, when I'm writing something like a talk or when I was writing the book, I didn't feel it was practical for me to be mindful and write at the same time. So with that kind of cognitive activity, and this is probably true for a lot of desk jobs, 
I would just try to come back into my body periodically, regularly, and check that I still felt balanced. So I think kind of keeping an eye when you're involved in some work like that, is the mind going out of balance? Am I getting involved with grasping, proliferation, unwholesome emotions coming up? That's kind of sufficient. Now, listening to a podcast is, a diff- is in a different territory. It's like listening to a Dharma talk. And I find that in listening to a Dharma talk, I can be, I have 50% of my attention in the words of the talk and 50% on, say, my body. And there's enough processing power to hold them both. So I find that very doable. And this practice would be great for listening to a Dharma talk. Keep 50% in the awareness and 50% on the content. You know, not that much gets said in a Dharma talk, really. So I think you could, I think you could do that. But other things like, like writing, um, where you're really having to think, or an architect planning a building, I think it's much more difficult. And then the important thing is keeping an eye, is your mind staying in balance? Yeah. Thank you. Let's see, Linda. The question is how to do the two hours a day, any way that works for you. For me, it's generally been one hour in the morning and one hour at night. Um, but if you, if you wanted to sit, you know, three 40-minute periods, that would also work great. So it's sort of what your time allows and just see how it adds up. And when you sit them just depends on your individual schedule and what works for you. Actually, for a long, a long time... Um, before I hurt my back, I was sitting two hours before breakfast every day. And so I'd do an hour of sitting, half an hour of yoga, and another hour of sitting. Um, other times I'd sit for an hour in the morning and an hour when I finished work in the evening. It just depends. Whatever adds up. Well. Teachers in our sangha who would be capable of instructing and guiding in this practice. Uh, Sally Armstrong, (laughs) I think, is pretty good. Um, Joseph Goldstein can. Um, Philip Moffat has spent a lot of time in this territory. Uh, See, I shouldn't be recording this, should I? (laughs) This is for retreat. That's okay. This is for retreatants only. Um, Adrian Ross has taught these retreats quite a bit. Well, you know, as uh, Michael was saying, depends on the flavor, like Andrea Feller and the Tejaniya style that you work So Sally's bringing up what Michael referred to, the Saida Utejaniya style. I don't regard it as equivalent to this. I'm with all apology to Saida Utejaniya, whom I respect a lot. It's a different practice. So if, this is, if the practice you want is, is knowing awareness or mindfulness of consciousness, Saida Utejan Nia's approach is different from that. So the teachers who teach roughly along the lines of mindfulness of consciousness, I think I've named the ones that come to my mind. Susie oh, Susie Harrington. Brian. Yeah, Brian Lesage. Yeah, Susie Harrington and Brian Lesage are leading the current 
um, APP program, along with Don Scott. You could get more information from Don about APP. Katrinka. So the comment was Robert Bea's book was not on my list of um, awareness readings. Two reasons. One, I haven't read it. The second is my understanding is that he's focused more on emptiness than on awareness. And so I don't know if he has the kind of awareness approach that we've been talking about this week. Oh, the suggested reading list is out underneath the bulletin board. It's a little uh, half-page list of books. Yeah. If you haven't picked one up, there's a copy for everybody. Okay. Well, this is about where we were planning to wrap up. So why don't we just have a couple of minutes of sitting? Do you know what we're doing? (laughs) I guess not. (laughs) Oh, right. Sally had the brilliant idea to take a group photo. So are you all up for that? Okay. So did you bring your camera? She's got her camera. And we thought we would gather up here because there's a little more light. Kathy, will that work for you to come up? Yeah. And... um, I think we're going to have to do a few tiers to get everyone in, but we can go quite a bit of the way across. Some people standing, some people kneeling. And maybe the people who have their zabatons here, you mm-hmm. can just bring them and flip face this way. We have a row here.
So you are now released on your own recognizance. <laughs> and we'll come back here at um, 7.30 for a closing, uh, course closing together. And silence uh, returns at 5 o'clock. 5.30, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.